Welcome to this special collaborative edition of the Lux Occult and Keeping Her Keys podcast. I'm Lux Estrada here with Dr. Cindy Brannan, author of Keeping Her Keys, and of course, host of Keeping Her Keys podcast and the online resource keepingherkeys.com. Cindy is also the author of the new book, Entering Hecate's Garden, The Magic, Medicine, and Mystery of Plant Spirit Witchcraft. Thanks so much for being here with me today. How are you, Dr. Brennan? I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited and looking forward to this conversation exploring um, Hecate's garden. I'm so excited to be talking with you as well. Um, a really fun book. I've really enjoyed so much about it. I love the dark goddess cheesecake recipe. There's all kinds of things in there that I'm so excited to try. In addition to that, there's all kinds of really fun like research and tidbits. One of the things that I found really central to it for me was this idea of the poison that heals. This is something that comes up for me a lot in my Hikatian practice, this idea of like finding the cure where the poison grows. And so I'm so excited to be talking about all this stuff. Yeah, it's one of my favorite subjects to, to talk about. It's so important for us to realize that where the poison is or where the pain is, is where the source of healing also is that they aren't disparate. They they live together. They are companions for each other. Uh, and I think, you know, writing from my perspective, which is definitely, you know, psycho-spiritual, the idea of connecting with plant medicine for our healing journey and understanding that by working with poisonous plants, you know, it is about a, a return or an awakening to uh, the realization, you know, that the the, po- the things that we often feel are poison are where we can find healing um, and growth and so on. So I'm excited about this conversation. Now, this is a joint episode that we're doing on both your wonderful podcast and the Keeping Your Keys. So every episode of Keeping Your Keys, we open with a simple candle ritual, which is based on the Triformis ritual that is in entering Hecate's garden. This is just a version of it that everyone can do as part of a daily practice. Uh, If you don't have a candle, that's fine. You can just use your hands. We want to create the energy of banishing or cleansing and then the energy of protection and connection. And I always finish up with a little invocation that sets the circle for uh, the conversation that I'll be having. So are you ready? Absolutely. It sounds wonderful. So typically, we work with the left hand for um, banishing, cleansing, and purification. So if you want to light your candle, and then just encircle it around you, whatever's comfortable um, in that counterclockwise motion. It's lovely to do this in uh, duplicates of three as a subtle way to honor Hecate, of course. And it's just as we circle counterclockwise, just summoning that energy of cleansing, of banishing whatever is blocking and binding us. And then switching hands and casting the circle clockwise, 
which brings forward the energy of protection and also connecting, of coming together. And now the circle is cast with a beautiful candle, and I will read the invocation that I chose. So this is from Entering Hecate's Garden. It's from Chapter 3, Origio the Source. Remember whose you are, Hecate's chosen, never broken, rising stronger, keepers of keys, seekers of mystery, practitioners of the craft, firewalkers, torchbearers, flamethrowers, shadow walkers, victorious dragon tamers, banishers of the profane, binders of the evil, blessers of the true. Speak unto the spirits of my garden, allowing them to fulfill their purpose as your true medicine. Hail Hecate. Hail Hecate. All right. Well, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So I was hoping we could sort of just dive right in here and talk about the concept of pharmacia. So for those who are unfamiliar with this term, could you give a little bit of a general definition? Well, the term pharmakeia has really ancient origins, and it is connected to Hecate, Circe, Medea, other ancient, what we might call today witches, sorceresses, other mythological figures who practiced magic. This magic was deeply rooted, pun intended, in the green world and in plant-based formulations and working with plants to bring both blessing and bane. So that's kind of the origin of the word pharma, is that it means that there is a great book. I don't know if you've heard of this book. I reference it in entering uh, Hecate's Garden quite often. It's a bit of an obscure book, but I think you would really, really like it. It's called Witchcraft Medicine. Have you heard of this book? It sounds familiar. So it is a German book that's translated was translated into English. It's um, I think it's I want to say twenty years old or so. Um, and this book really has it's very evocative of pharmacia and the crooked path of witchcraft as medicine. So that was certainly you know one of the big books that inspired me in how I approached talking about pharmacia in entering Hecate's garden. So pharmacia is, you know, the practice of, I would say like in modern terms, pharmacia is the practice of holistic herbalism that includes a magical component. It delineates maybe from more clinical modern herbalism where there isn't that magical component. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So could you talk a little bit about then your relationship with pharmacia, your, your own sort of personal experience or your um, maybe take on it? Well, I mean, I think we should, maybe I should say something about kind of reclaiming the word pharmacia hmm. as sacred because, you know, there was a, a lot of discussion before I wrote the book and even, you know, dating way back to when I first started using the word pharmacia in my courses because today, you know, the word pharma means something very different for most of us than like holistic herbalism that involves the practice of magic. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, for me, it's a reclaiming of a word 
whose history is drenched in these mythical witches like Circe and Medea, and also in, you know, the practice by real people in the ancient Mediterranean that did this kind of magic. So, you know, I know we, we think of big pharma, we think of pharmacology, and it's very disconnected from the natural world or from the plants that were originally used to formulate medicine. And even the word medicine today, you know, has such a different understanding than, you know, if we were to imagine like Circe and Medea crafting their spells, how they would have understood words like pharma and medicine would have been very different than how we understand them today. So there's a, that element of reclaiming that I wanted to weave into the book, though I know, you know, just hearing the word pharmakeia for the first time, it can be a little bit, not challenging, but it can be a little bit like almost confusing. Like what is pharmakeia, you know, this, what does this have to do with pharmacology? So there's that element of that. So for me, a huge part of my personal journey and in my teaching is reclaiming work. So reclaiming witchcraft is sacred, reclaiming the sacred feminine as both creative and destructive, reclaiming and reimagining how the goddesses and the mythic women I connect with, how they can heal us into our wholeness, especially for people like me who have a close relationship with the archetype of the witch. So, you know, pharmacaea for me is having all the botanicals in my house and, you know, that they're used for physiological reasons. You know, if someone has a cold or a cough or is feeling anxious uh, and they're also used for magic and that there is no separation between like the physiological application, the magical application and the spiritual application, you know, that if we're working with yarrow, for example, there's all those kind of layers involved in whatever I'm doing, whether it's whether the most pressing symptom would be perhaps a physical one, or if the most pressing symptom is uh, a more spiritual one, or even like an energetic one, you know, something in relation to an external event or, you know, something, a desired outcome or something like that. So for me, it's just holistic herbalism that includes magic. And it's, it's the way I live. It's one of those things. Do you know how sometimes something is so much a part of our lives, it can be a little bit challenging to give it a short definition. And that was certainly one of my challenges in writing this book. It's like, how do I take something that is so much part of me and put it in a book in a way that is helpful for readers to connect with it and to be inspired to perhaps adopt a similar mindset, you know, that herbalism is holistic and can be woven into every aspect of our lives. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think it's definitely very accurate that once we pass a level of familiarity with something, it becomes very difficult to maybe bring it down to earth in a way that can be accessible to somebody who's just approaching. I'm, I'm thinking of this metaphor of like, trying to explain to somebody who's never gone to sleep before how you go to sleep. It's like, well, you just do it, you know. But I was hoping we could talk a little bit about a poison or a medicine that comes up a lot in the history of witchcraft and it comes up in your book and talk about it a little bit in terms of its historical applications. And this is aconite. I love aconite. Aconite demands respect. 
And I think, you know, for me, I have an aconite patch here. It's secret where it is. It's away from, you know, it's away from the house and the animals, of course, the wildlife where I live, they, they're smart enough to stay away from it. So it's away in a secret patch. And uh, I'm, I do manage to get it to grow here quite well. So aconite, there is a monograph for it in entering Hecate's garden. If anyone is interested in learning a bit more about working with it, aconite is known by many different names. Some people might know it as monkshood. Um, do you call it aconite or how do you refer to it? I, when I first was introduced to it, it was in terms of studying plant biology. And I think I was taking a taxonomy course and we were like collecting samples. And that's when I first thought we were up in the, you know, higher altitudes in Colorado. So that we saw monkshood or I think aconite was the uh, genus name too for it. The one that I saw at least. And so, yeah, I think with plants, the common names can be a little bit misleading it's not the case with other things like birds. The common names really mostly just refer to one single type of bird. But with plants, the common names can be pretty confusing. So we tended to stick with the botanical name. So I think it was aconite that I sort of knew it by. But also, you know, monk's hood was another common one. Monk's hood, wolfsbane, the devil's helmet. It's a favorite hmm. folk name for aconite that I like to call. Kind of look like a little helmet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> devil's helmet. There's so many. So aconite, in, the, in entering Hecate's garden, I, I write that aconite was the most prized plant of Hecate's garden. It teaches the lesson of Hecate that without death, there is no life. Um, and certainly, you know, aconite in terms of physiological uses has some interesting applications because it works on the cardiac system, on the heart and the blood and so on. So, you know, even though this is an extreme poison, there are physiological applications for it, but I mean, it's not something that you should ever do yourself. But I know in homeopathy, sometimes aconite can be used. Aconite is really good for releasing acute attacks of anxiety as well. So if you are feeling really anxious, you know, if you have like a little vial of aconite seeds on your altar, and you know, that you can safely hold it. Keyword there, I said it was in a vial because you should never, ever touch aconite with your bare hands and you should never ever consume it. I like to I like to put it out there what the uh, kind of like the the disclaimers are. You know, often I'll say what the contraindications are for a botanical, but in the case of aconite, there's all the contraindications. Like no one should consume it, no one should touch it. So wear your gloves, you can get some seeds if you like and keep them on a vial on the altar. And even like holding the seeds, if you are having like a panic attack, or if you're just spiraling, you know what I mean? Like, all the worries have kind of caught up with you and they're dancing around in your head like a collection of troublesome spirits. Just holding a vial of aconite in a safe way can be incredibly calming. So I love aconite. I grow it myself, use the gloves. I have burnt myself with aconite, not recently, but in the past, not wearing thick enough gloves um, when I'm working with my little patch of aconite that I grow. And it also has this beautiful lore around it. So, you know, I know a lot of, I know a lot of times there's discussions about mandragora, but for me, aconite has always been the primary plant of my personal witchcraft. It is the greatest teacher, the most demanding 
plant and the plant that needs the most respect and it very much tending to it and knowing that it is there. Well, of course it's dormant this time of the year, but even I even visit the little patch in the winter because it's such a reminder that even something as mighty as aconite needs that period of decay and death to be reborn. So love aconite. If the seeds or the plant are not available to you, a botanical card or, you know, creating your own talisman using images of aconite certainly works well as a substitute because one of the things with pharmacaea that I failed to mention earlier is that since we are focused on the spirit of the plant medicine, you can connect to that spirit, the deeper essence of the plant that is certainly contained in the physical specimen but that the plants, each of the plants themselves are archetypes or spirits that we can connect to in different ways. So you can use like a card or another visual prompt to connect to aconite as well. Yeah, I love that idea. I'm thinking now of the specimen I collected during my taxonomy class. I still have it. I'm thinking about maybe framing it and putting it by my altar because I, yeah, I just, I love that idea of having this talismanic representation. Of it. mentioned Medea and Circe, and I was hoping you could go into a little bit of this relationship that forms between these two sorceresses and Hecate for you. Maybe I'll start with the origin story of entering Hecate's garden and where the seed was germinated for the book. So I was, I say I'm an accidental classicist, and I unintentionally learned quite a bit of Greek. Um, because I was so drawn to Hecate, and I'm a researcher, I'm an academic, so I'm always curious, and I'm a psychologist, so I'm always curious about, like, why is this thus? You know, why am I so drawn to Hecate? And I was reading um, the Argonautica, which is the one version of the ancient story of Jason and his sailors. They go around, they pillage, they conquer, they cause a lot of trouble. And, you know, Medea gets involved along the way, kind of gets enchanted by Jason. And there is this passage in one version of the Argonautica where the the garden that they go to to liberate this fancy sheepskin that Jason is after, the Golden Fleece. <laughs> And that garden is referred to as Hecate's garden. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you read something, even just a few words, and it's like a whole world opens up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or just heard a phrase and then it's like a like a rabbit hole you can climb into. <laughs> exactly. It's like something deeper has opened when I read that. And I thought, oh, that's fascinating. This Hecate's garden. And you know, in the garden, there was the mighty oak and aconite. And in this particular version of the story, you know, it lists like, I think it's about 40 plants that were in this, uh, this garden. That is so fascinating. Um, So that's where the seed was planted, that there was Hecate's garden. And it was this beautiful place. And of course, in one version of the Argonautica, there's a big dragon creature there. And Jason kind of tricks Medea into doing a spell. So the dragon stops guarding the special sheepskin that he's after. And so he can take it from the mighty oak and away they go. And the rest is a disaster if you know the story. Yes, things don't go so great. (laughs) Um, It's like, Medea, if you just would have 
resisted him at that point. Let the dragon be. Come on, girl. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's Hecate's garden. There's a dragon garden, the sheepskin. He's not worth it. It's <laughs> not worth it. What's going to happen? But I mean, I do like for me connecting to the spirit of Medea, it's really interesting. So it was probably a little over five years ago before the Circe novel came out. So I had developed this relationship with, you know, that trinity of Hecate and Medea as like kind of this shadowy queen of poisons and Circe as this queen of the green world. I had developed this personal relationship with them for many, many years and started sharing it with others. And I found that people were really fascinated by Circe and Medea. Circe, of course, comes from the Odyssey. I read, read that when I was at high school. And I think at the time it was kind of planted in my mind, like, wait a second here. Why is Circe getting the bad rap for this? Yeah, they showed up on her island. <laughs> she was just chilling. Yeah. <laughs> wait a second. And so... At the t so I wrote to I re like did two research kind of blog articles about Cersei Medea at that time before the Cersei novel came out and I was super excited I you know I was very I, I am completely enchanted by Cersei and Medea and I was very excited and I thought this would really resonate with a lot of people and at first it didn't you know at first I I think what I was saying was perhaps too different especially, you know, a lot of times we kind of focus on like the big goddesses like Hecate and the Morgan, you know, like, and it's like, who are these two coming to the party? Mm -hmm. And there hadn't been, I wanted to write about Circe and Medea because there hadn't been a lot of reimagining their stories at up until that point. You know, Medea is us usually universally trashed for her actions instead of being seen as you know, a woman who had no choice, who had been enchanted herself by Jason. You know, that part of the story is often overlooked. Um, and the same with Cersei, they violated her land. Like it wasn't, she didn't go look at, neither one of them really went looking for trouble. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote those two blog articles and like had some of those synchronous experiences, if you know what I mean, where... Mm -hmm. The idea for entering Hecate's garden as a book was formed. And um, and I was just really excited to frame a book about holistic magical herbalism around the trinity of Hecate, Circe, and Medea. Now, in, in some of the more obscure versions of their stories, Hecate is like their biological mother. But in the book, you know, it's like Hecate is at least their spiritual mother of Medea and Circe, because in the mythology, in all the different versions, you know, Hecate is called upon in their spell work to be their helpmate. Hmm. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I love that. So how would you feel about taking a bibliomancy break? I am excited. Okay, fantastic. You can ask the oracle whatever you like, and once we have the question, I will roll a couple of dice, and we will see what text we will be consulting. Oh, I have to think of a question. You can ask whatever you like. I would like to ask the oracle if the oracle has any insight about a recent dream I had. 
that was very powerful. So, it, and I'm still working on understanding the messages of this dream. So I'd like to know if the Oracle has any helpful advice for piecing together what this dream could mean. Okay, fantastic. The deity who I call on for this particular divinatory work is Eris or Strife. So I will ask, oh, Eris, if you could please point us in the direction of some insight into Dr. Brenner's recent dream. Okay, so we will be consulting item four from table five, which is a book called Symmetry by Marcus de Satre. So let me go find it. I will be right back here. Just writing that down. Symmetry. Oh, Eris, please give us some insight into the dream that Dr. Brennan had recently. Simple way to transmit data to allow for direction and correction of errors. Send the message three times. Okay. Thank you, Eris. I'm just writing that down. Thank you, Eris. So yes, this was a, a simple way to transmit data to allow for direction and correction of errors. Send the message three times. That, that feels... Uh, there's something about the having the three times in there definitely feels significant to me. I'm not, I don't think I have enough information to say what that might be about, but hopefully it might lend some insight to you. Yes. When the, uh, simple is good. Mm -hmm. And of course, when threes show up, it's always good. <laughs> Excellent. Well, fantastic. Very happy to <laughs> yes. Like a subtle reminder. <laughs> I, have the triple so <laughs> I love it. So at this point in my interviews, I like to ask guests if they have any comments about divination or if they would like to speak about their own divinatory practice or anything along those lines. Oh, wow. Where would we ever even begin? I know, right? <laughs> in and entering Hecate's garden, I do have a, a bit on divination. So I could refer you to that, you could read the leaves. Oh, one of my favorite things. And I teach it in my school. We do it every summer during the month of Anodia. So Anodia is a title of Hecate that means basically goddess of the road. She has a lot of other powers too, but you know, it's the that crossroads image, but also like the journey and so on. So we do every summer um, a coterie, so like a collection of bay leaves that in, inspired by the ancient sibyls, we either use like epithets, which are titles of Hecate and other goddesses, or we use like different words. In entering Hecate's garden, I think there is like the sacred seven ritual, and there's certain words associated with that ritual. So we take seven bay leaves and, you know, assign signatures to them, and then work on uh, divining using those bay leaves. So that's one of my favorite plant-based ways to practice the oracle or Sibylica, as I call it, inspired by the ancient Sibyls. For my personal daily divinatory work, like in my school, we do what's called the Enodia Oracle, that the foundational practice I wrote about in the Keeping Her Keys book, and it's to connect to the two basic dimensions of all energy, like of all things, which is approach and avoidance. So we pull a card in the approach position and pull a card in the avoid position. 
Uh, in terms of, I guess, my personal decks, I have the Wild Unknown Archetypes, which is really, I find that very connected to Hecatean because Kim Kranz, who designed the deck, you know, she has her graduate studies in depth psychology, so she brings a lot of depth to the cards. So that's the deck I use most often for my personal work, although I love my bay leaves, and I always have my bay leaves on the go. Yeah, I love that. Very cool. And I'm so glad that you brought up this idea of the seven forces. I'm guessing this is the same thing I'm going to ask you about, because it's sort of aligned with this sort of idea of like the seven planets of the ancients. You have this very fun ritual in entering Hecate's garden about these seven forces. And I was hoping we could talk a little bit about what those look like. Um, and I'll just go ahead and, and list them here, which is passion to feel, strength to will, sovereignty to dare, power to go, discipline to be silent, awareness to know, and integrity to believe. So those seven principles or seven keys are connected to each of the original seven wandering stars that would have been visible and known to ancient practitioners who were connected to Hecate. And in my approach to astrology, I call it modern traditional. So I draw a lot from what's now known as Hellenistic astrology or more contemporary astrology. And I focus a lot on connecting and understanding the signatures and qualities of the seven, you know, the sacred seven, the seven wandering stars. And so I expanded the signatures, you know, to work in a ritual form so we can connect all seven. And of course, like most plants, particularly plants that have been known for quite some time and have a European origin or were known in the ancient world, uh, perhaps came from like the, the Middle East or something, that they are associated since antiquity with a specific planet. So for me, in learning pharmacaea, to understand the sacred seven, if you know what a plant is governed by, then it really gives you a way in. It's like opening a door to what the medicine of that plant is. So I included this ritual in the book as a way to, you know, it's one thing when we kind of study, it's like, oh, well, Saturn means this and Mercury means that. But then to kind of draw them into a ritual and to connect with them in the physical self and linking them to different botanicals really deepens our association with those planets and can, you know, help us understand their signatures, which for those of us who are interested in astrology um, is a way to really strengthen our understanding of, of that as well. Yeah, very cool. So this sort of idea of maybe initiating yourself into this energy that these different planets offer and is a way to sort of work with them more directly in your uh, pharmacia work. I love that. Very cool. So I like also that you brought up this kind of juxtaposition between Kronos and Kairos. Kronos is something that I have trouble with sometimes. We were discussing this before we started recording, and I really like the reference that you have to th these different experiences of time and, and what happens there and everything. So Kronos and Kairos to the ancient Greeks, they were like the embodiments of time, but two very different types of time. That Kronos was like linear time. It was calendars, the progression of time. And Kairos was like the cyclic 
eternal uh, time of the, the gods. So we need chronos. You and I need, you know, like to come together to do this recording. We need chronos. <laughs> we need schedules. We need to course. figure out time zones. Yes. Right? <laughs> and chronos <laughs> is also another name for Saturn, the planet Saturn. Anyway, there's a lot to it. And Kairos is, I think, the best kind of comparison in, in like our modern kind of psychological understanding would be flow state. You know, it's that time when we are so engaged in whatever it is we're doing, we lose the sense of self, like we lose the monkey mind, you know, like we're not thinking about making dinner, we're not thinking about this argument we had with our partner, you know, like we are in what we are doing, and we are the totality of that experience. And for me, when I am with my plans, or when I am, I'm starting to get ready, I do a spell of the year jar, which has like 13, I follow the lunar calendar. So it has like 13 botanicals, you know, all these elements of 13 in it, you know, like the kind I step into Kairos when I am doing that, because it I'm connecting to something much greater than me, that is cyclical. And I think a lot of us are familiar with the idea of the wheel of the year. And that's an example of Kairos, you know, it shows us that time is eternal, and is always repeating. Uh, whereas Kronos is very much like you look at the calendar and it's that progression. It's 2022. It'll soon be 2023. So that's a little bit on Kronos and Kairos. Yeah, I love that. Very cool. I think that for me, there's this kind of like synthesis of these two things that ends up being like this helix that I imagine of time as being cyclical, but we never quite come back to the same point again because we're different and the circumstances are different, but it's still the cycle. And yeah, I just love it. Very cool. November, Delta, So this comes up in the book, the idea of plant possession. Could we talk a little bit about that? Well, this is an interesting one. And I think I've based this on my own experience um, and also what I kind of observed in others, especially around the poisons. Like the poisons can be very, very enchanting. Mm -hmm. And we can kind of lose our sense of self to a plant, particularly like some of the really strong ones like aconite, foxglove, mandragora belladonna, you know, some of the ones that are very, very strong spirits, Mm -hmm. we can lose a sense of who we are, if we develop too much of a a dependency on them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of curious, for people who are listening that might be like worried about this, like what kind of things might we do to circumvent this pitfall? Oh, and I want to have one caveat that during like if we're doing a meditation or a ritual and deeply connecting with a plant you know this kind of like allowing a plant to possess us almost like you know that we become a channel for what the plant's medicine is that that's you know that can be a healthy and natural experience Mm -hmm. and at the same time like to not have that become like a way of being in the world that because these are very, they can be very demanding and strong spirits. So I I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say like you never allow a plant to kind of come into you. And I know some people get freaked out by the word possession, but you know, like to let a plant kind of like occupy uh, space and 
really connect with it that way. And almost like it can be like a sexual union or it can be like, it's, you know, it's like the lover's card. It's hard to kind of describe. There can be that union, but there Mm -hmm. can also be the aspect of, you know, like going too far and into the danger zone where we develop like a reliance on the plant. We start to see the world as the plant might see the world. And we lose that kind of sense of who we are to the plant, which you know, we don't want to do that with any spirits, whether it's, you know, Hecate or Aconite. You don't want to be so consumed by it that you lose like your center to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm definitely thinking here too of, you know, people sometimes, you know, get a lot of benefit and mileage and, you know, spiritual go out of, you know, experimenting with things like entheogens and everything, but there is always a balancing act there where I think things like grounding and meditation and really, like you said, having this kind of really clear sense of oneself is so important there not to get swept up in something that's very powerful. Right. And, you you know, like in what you raised about, you know, I guess the popularity of certain things like ayahuasca or psilocybin. I mean, I don't, I intentionally didn't go into those areas in this book because I wanted it to be a book that was more accessible. I think there's a lot written about those um, particular types of plant medicines and others that are kind of in that same category. Mm -hmm. So I wanted this to be more accessible, that there were some more challenging plants or some plants that perhaps had mild psychogenic properties, but I didn't want to get into like, you know, the ones that can have profound impacts. And I want to also add it. There is this relationship between needing to surrender to a plant to find our sense of self, but then also not losing our sense of self to a plant in particular with, you know, like the more psychoactive ones that we might might work with, they can be very healing. Like we know there's a lot of research being done on things like psilocybin for, you know, mental health diagnosis, like PTSD and so on. So, but there's also that thing to to not think that the psilocybin is the reason that you are well, you are getting well because you are doing the work and the plant is there as your ally and supporter. Don't let the plant take over your life. Yeah, Absolutely. So there's one last thing I was hoping we could talk about, and this is this idea of the witch's voice. And I figured this would be kind of on topic since we're here making this podcast together and everything and using our voices in this way. And I, yeah, I, I loved what you had written about it in uh, Entering Hecate's Garden. I, I'm really enchanted by, I keep using the word enchanted. I'm really fascinated by this collection of ancient fragments that was discovered in Egypt I think about a hundred years ago, maybe a little, yeah, around a hundred years ago, that's come to be known as the Greek magical papyri, commonly abbreviated as the PGM. Everybody loves it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody loves it. That's right. There's all kinds of crazy stuff in there. The Greeks were quite intense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, the idea of uh, voices, magicae, or magical words, mm-hmm. uh, barbarous words, all of this really fascinates me. And then, I guess for me, coupled with my fascination about Circe's voice, you know, it, like Circe having a shrill voice that was neither divine nor human, like, you know, mm-hmm. this whole thing about the witch's voice and the power of giving voice and speaking truth. 
and what, you know, like just those spells and rituals and the PGM, like the voice in them is so inspiring to me. Not that I'm ever going to like verbatim do anything in that book. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I've been mightily inspired by, you know, like the truth and the power and the emotionality of the, the spells and rituals in the PGM. Mm-hmm. Though, you know, I can't see that I would do some of the things that they write about. So this idea of speaking and having a voice and using our voice, because at least in my experience and kind of where I'm at in the work that I do, you know, I've talked to like thousands of people over the years. And one of the biggest challenges, I mean, we're kind of nested within the corner of the broader witch world or a cult, a cult world, though I always say I'm a cult-ish. <laughs> so, you know, this, this broader world where people feel that they don't fit into the, the mainstream society and, you know, like they're called by Hecate or they're called by witchcraft because it's very liminal. It's very about being the in-between, like not being in the mainstream, right? So, mm. so a lot of people have been really silenced or they feel really silenced that they can't speak what is true to them. And so I do believe that when we are doing a ritual or crafting a talisman or saying an incantation, you know, making an incantation bowl or whatever it is we're doing, that when we add like the spoken word to it, because many of us have been silenced in the past, that's where the magical words come from. You know, that's where those um, voices magicae come from is when we speak our spells to life. And, you know, certainly from the research, we of course know that talking to plants, plants enjoy being talked to. So there's that kind of application, you know, like, well, there's some research that backs up this kind of mystical idea of singing our spells. And I especially advocate for um, singing spells to life and giving them vitality that way and imagining, you know, that we're connecting to Circe and Medea with our singing. You don't need to be a good singer. I'm a horrible singer. Doesn't matter. The plants for the most part don't care. <laughs> yeah, there's a huge difference between singing and speaking just in terms of like how much I think energy you're putting into it. I I feel like the amount of concentration and physical effort that goes into singing is so much different than just speaking. So yeah, just a little a little twist like that can can really change the way that that something feels in ritual. I totally agree. And it can be fun. And it's a great way for us to get over maybe some of our personal hangups, you know, and to see us more as the creatrix of our magic, that we're more engaged, that magic or ritual or the deeper world in general is something that we are deeply attuned to. Um, And so it's also a way, I think, of breaking down kind of that wall of separation that especially newcomers who are drawn to this path might feel, you know, they can be intimidated by plants or connecting to plants and you know it's just start by talking to your plant yeah i love that it's a good it's a good point that there is a lot of there's so much history and depth and and science that goes into to looking at plants and there's all these latin names and you know families and it can there's all these correspondences i mean it's a lot to to sort of get your head around as an as a newcomer and so i think as you're saying to just sort of connect on this very one-on-one basis could be a really beneficial way to go for sure and I, I do think it's important, um, you know, I kind of touched upon this when I was talking about the seven wandering stars. I think it's important to kind of choose one plant, you know, like there's 39 monographs in entering Hecate's garden. There are 
literally thousands of plants or more that you can connect with. And there's an exercise in entering Hecate's garden about just going out in nature and connecting to a plant kind of beyond what you might've read in a monograph or, you know, and I, I do think I am a proponent of choosing one plant that seems to speak loudest out of the course, developing a relationship with them, like actually, you know, having the plant or having a card, a spirit card of the plant and, you know, really studying its lore and properties in developing, like seeing the plant as a spirit, like an ally and getting to know the plant. I, I Rather than just accumulating lots of book learning about all the properties of hundreds of plants, you know, there's, there's that equanimity that you want to actually be practicing this rather than just learning about it. Yeah, absolutely. The idea of approaching it in much the same way is on my show, we've talked about approaching deity work, you know, seeing who's calling to you, seeing what their deal is, what are they into, what are they like? I, I think about approaching deity work a lot like dating, you know, hanging out, getting to know this, you know, force or whatever, and, and approaching plant spirit witchcraft, it sounds like it's very, could be a very similar process. Definitely. And building a relationship, you know, like sometimes, what's that app? Is it Tinder that you swipe? I believe that's one of them. <laughs> I'm I am so not in that world. I'm not either. <laughs> but you know, it's it's sometimes like you you might just want deity or plant spirit or stone, whatever it is you're working with. It might just be like a one-off situation, a hookup. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they call it. Um, <laughs> I believe you're correct. <laughs> which is fine. There's no judgment about that. And other times, you might want to develop like a serious relationship or an affiliation mm -hmm. with a deity or a plant or a different form of spirit ally. So it's like, what is your goal here? Is it just like you want to hook up and get the need met? Or, you know, is it you want a nourishing and beautiful, reciprocal, collaborative association with whatever the spirit is? Yeah. And it's so interesting. Sometimes that can happen on its own. I'm actually thinking about how my own Hikatian work started. I was kind of introduced in sort of like a more of a hick, you know, hookup type of way by um, some some folks here locally that I was working with and participated in a ritual where she was involved and she came through so so very strong that I was like, oh man, we, there's a thing here. There's a thing. There's a thing for me and her that that's and it's real. You know, <laughs> I got to pursue this. You know, <laughs> so yeah, I love that. So hookup can lead to long term relationships. Absolutely, <laughs> keep your mind open. <laughs> So is there anything which I didn't ask you about which you would like to mention? Or do you have any questions that you would like to ask me? So in the book, I talk about uh, Molly or Molly, depending on how you pronounce it, which is the idea in, in Cersei's story in particular, but in other stories, there's this idea that, that Molly is like this most sacred, most powerful plant. And I mean, rabbit holes to go down. It, there's a lot of academic speculation about what Molly might be um, from garlic to different things. I think I've heard marijuana from yes. one person that wrote about how marijuana is the, the key to everything, which I suppose it could be. I don't know. So, I'm wondering if you have a personal Molly, like my personal Molly, I would say is mugwort. Hmm. It's my prime. It's my, pri or I call it my primary. 
you know, it's the plant spirit above all plant spirits that I am closest to and connect the most with. Do you have one like that? I want to say that there's two that are standing out for me. Garlic and basil are both really big for me. Yeah, I would I would say those those two next to each other. I maybe garlic recently has become more prominent just because of the Hecatian work that I do. I like to do a little bit of guerrilla gardening, planting garlic at crossroads and stuff like that. But um, yeah, garlic. So I have a, okay. I'm glad you brought up garlic. <laughs> so we just finished the season of release in like the courses I teach in my school in Covina. And we did Close of Catharsis. So I'm going to recommend this for you if you've never done this. We um, Have you ever grown garlic like just in a jar with water? Yes, I have. So we made that into this like psycho-spiritual magical process where we wrote whatever we were releasing on the cloves and turned it into almost like divinatory oracular experience like as the clothes grew whatever ones that we had kind of enchanted with whatever you know we were releasing we studied like what ones grew more what ones grew less what ones kind of rotted and fell off so we call it the I called it the clothes of catharsis so I love garlic Um, it's so powerful and I do think it gets overlooked because it is such a kitchen staple that the deeper kind of connection to Hecate, connection to ritual, connection to magic gets overlooked. So yes, close of catharsis. I love that. That's very cool. I'm definitely going to give that a whirl. Uh, In my new book that's just coming out soon, Entering Hecate's Cave, there is um, an Animarum catharsis, a ritual of release. And, you know, so in the school, we go deeper to what's in my books. And so we I woke up one morning with this, oh, I know what we should do with garlic. It's perfect for catharsis. It's perfect. Garlic is amazing for any kind of release work. Very cool. So just real quick, could you give us a little bit of a teaser about what people can expect from this book that's going to be out soon? So Entering Hecate's Cave is about the intentional healing journey through darkness to wholeness. So it is very much a book of ritual, of personal inquiry, of depth psychology. Um, Now, of course, there is magic along the way. So that is my new book that's coming out. So it's based around three rituals, which I call the rituals of the sacred cave. So we go through the process of release through catharsis, Mm -hmm. retrieval, soul retrieval, and ultimately rebirth. So the three the the three ritual cycle was inspired by the ancient rites at Eleusis, of course, and other ancient rites. So it is this process of release, retrieval, and rebirth that those three rituals, and then the book expands, you know, on the psychology, on different exercises. I call them practica, and so on. And then because it is about the cave, there's thirteen stones as well. You have to have stones if you're doing, if you're in Hecate's cave, there needs to be rocks. There should be some rocks somewhere. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> All right, fantastic. So I'm guessing this might have a little bit of geological tidbits in here for us, perhaps? I really focus on the rituals and kind of, you know, I, I talk about the stones in a, like a general sense, but there's not like, you know, in entering Hecate's garden, I have those in-depth monographs. There's not that. I, I refer to to writers like Nicola, and teachers like Nicholas Pearson, who I think do amazing work on stones. So I didn't want to repeat 
what I feel is all already out there. So Nicholas, he has an amazing book called Stones of the Goddess. If someone is drawn to, you know, deeper work with stones, that I would totally recommend that. Very cool. Well, yeah, I love this idea of going intentionally into the darkness as a means of gaining power and wholeness. I talk to a lot of people who feel a little bit trepidous about their own attraction to what they consider to be the darker aspects of things. And yeah, if if people are out there listening and they're feeling weird about being attracted to those kinds of things, I think it's very possible that that could just be yourself telling you that, you know, there's something to be healed and explored there. That was the case for me. So yeah. Definitely. You know, we see that like even, I would say like our societal obsession with true crime. Mm. You know, that like we have this, we live in this overly solar world, mm-hmm. you know, where there's too much artificial light, toxic positivity, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, you know, that calling to the nourishing darkness, like, and, and to looking at these things um, with, you know, curiosity and compassion rather than just avoiding them altogether. So I think uh, you're right that people can feel. Like, is there something wrong with me because I love horror movies? Or is there something wrong with me because I love macabre art or whatever it is? It's like, no, it's there is something inside of you that is calling your attention to these things as a mechanism for exploring what needs to be healed within you, like your own darkness. Mm-hmm. And not seeing your darkness as bad or evil or sinful, but as part of who you are. Yeah, absolutely. And even as you just said, like even just to rebalance, maybe maybe it's not even a heal. Maybe it's just a rebalancing journey. As you know, we live in this very, as you said, solar world. So yeah, all kinds of all kinds of benefits to being open to exploring things like that. So where can listeners find your work? I'm sure that people who are familiar with your podcast might already know, but where can my listeners look? They can look at keepingherkeys.com to find everything. They'll find my link tree there and everything is on the website. I I do have an online school known as the Covina Institute. Covina, of course, is Latin for coven. And they can find out like what courses are coming up and what my books are and where to listen to the podcast. And all of those things are right at keepingherkeys.com. All right. Fantastic. Well, I will put a link to that in the show notes and I will give you a link to my link tree if you would like it. And that's where your listeners can find me if they're interested in doing that. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. This has been very enjoyable and very illuminating. Well, thank you for having me and I am happy to share your link tree. All right. Fantastic. So you have a meditation that you have prepared to offer us today. Is that right? Yes. So I always start these meditations by just saying to just get comfortable, whatever that is for you. If you need to lay down, sit down. Generally, I recommend on crossing any uh, points on the body. So ankles, arms, and just relax your eyes. Close your eyes if that's safe for you. We're going to be doing some work on unifying our three selves. And after we do that, we'll take a short journey into Hecate's garden. Let's begin by putting our attention to the breath, just noticing it. Now in my teaching, I emphasize three 
centers that are connected to the physical self and also the deeper self. And these are the root, the heart, and the crown. So we're going to begin with a bit of a cleansing and alignment of these three centers. So now let's take the breath and imagine the breath is traveling all the way down to the belly. And I want you to just allow yourself to take up space here. A lot of times we hold in our bellies. So just fill the belly, allow it to relax out, feel the ribs even expanding, and let that breath go. Now take your breath again all the way down to that root. And you may be able to imagine that this root is deep within your sitting bones. So feel that energy going right there. And as you let the breath out here, envision roots flowing out from the center deep within you. And these roots stretch down, down into Chthonia, into Mother Earth beneath us, the soil. And these roots are very tethering and grounding. And they are also a way for us to release what we're holding within us. Which is oftentimes we get a lot of physical tension. So if you're feeling tense in your jaw or your shoulders and so on, just feel that releasing as you soften your body a bit while firmly grounded to the earth so we can go deeper into our meditation together. Now let's move the breath to the heart center. Take a breath in here and let it go. In the heart center, it's like the crossroads between our interior world and the exterior. And here we want that equanimity of having a strong back and a soft front. that we're open to experience, yet also wise. And if you're feeling any tension or any pushback here at the heart center, just envision that heart center connecting to the root and anything that you're holding onto at heart center, just let that go. Let it slide down through the root, slide down back into Chthonia, into the earth. And the third self is sometimes called the higher self. It's associated with like the mind and also the upper echelons of mysticism and so on. So a good way to connect with that aspect within ourselves is to take the breath upwards, to just see the breath flowing up past the sinuses and eyes and enveloping the brain 
And as you release the breath here, you let go, and again, sliding down through heart, through root. Anything here, any nagging thoughts, anxieties that are coming up, just let them go with no judgment, with compassion. And let's just stay here in this state of unification where we have the crown opening up and being cleansed. The heart is opening up and the root is tethered and grounded. Now this state of balance within the body and connection of the three can bring like physiological sensations to the forefront. So just notice those. Now we're going to use our breath as a way to take a short journey into Hecate's garden. So pull that breath up again, seeing it go up, up, past the regular mind to the deeper, deeper self, soul vision, the third eye. There's lots of different names for this. See that breath opening that so you can see with that vision. And as you let the breath go here, I want you to see or perceive a gate, a doorway, an entrance into the deeper world of Hecate. And take another inhale as you contemplate that door. And as you exhale, step through it with me into Hecate's garden. And we are just going to observe and see what has come through, what Hecate and all the spirits of her garden would have us know. So just take in what you're seeing. What type of time of day is it? What plants do you see? Are there animals? What animals do you see? Are there spirits here? Who do you see? Now the garden is limitless and eternal and there is much to explore here. And now that you've opened the way to Hecate's garden, you can return here in your own time and in your own way to travel deeper into the garden. taking it all in oftentimes there will be a key of sorts that comes through for you it might be a plant an animal a spirit perhaps even Hecate herself will come through whatever key comes through for you just accept it 
And now, holding your key, allowing it to absorb in, perhaps through heart center, it's time for us to leave Hecate's garden. So let's step back through the gate, back into regular mind. Turning our attention back to breath now. Sliding all the way back into our physical selves. Relaxing that crown energy. Relaxing the heart energy. And relaxing the root. In this state of alignment and awareness, clarity, purpose, and so on, this experience of wholeness, carry this forward. And as always, I encourage uh, you to make a few notes. Jot down a quick illustration of your key, of what your experiences were, so you can um, attend to them later. And I thank you for trusting me to lead you through this meditation. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Well, thank you. This has been a lovely conversation. Yeah, I appreciate you joining me so much. And um, yes, I hope we can do this again sometime. We had talked a little bit about maybe doing a conversation about Saturn sometime, which I would be definitely very interested in. Oh, I love talking about Saturn. Okay. Well, Saturn have- is a friend of mine. It was not <laughs> an easy relationship at first, and there is still, it's one of those relationships that needs a lot of maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've learned a lot, and I've felt very called out in my Saturnian work. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Hail Hecate. Hail Hecate.